Empire. Welcome to my podcast. In a moment, you're going to hear my conversation with former Redskins safety and current ESPN analyst Matt Bowen. We're going to break down the Redskins draft, focusing on four key players in particular. Then we're going to take a walk down memory lane, some memories from Matt about playing for two of the coaches he did here, Steve Spurrier and Joe Gibbs. And I think you're going to enjoy that. And then later in the podcast, I'm going to weigh in on the Joe Theismann I don't know if it's number controversy with he and Dwayne Haskins, the number seven. Going to weigh in on that with my guy, Bram Weinstein. But first, here's my conversation with Matt Bowen. So now I'm going to bring in Matt Bowen, who did a lot of pre-draft analysis of these players doing stuff with the SEC Network. The NFL matchup show and by the way during the season you need to watch that show it's very educational informative and insightful one of my all-time favorite shows anyway so I'm bringing on Matt because he does he is familiar with a lot of the Redskins draft picks and there are several in particular I'm going to focus on because these are the guys that Matt also focused heavier on and I think they're very important players so Matt I want to start with Dwayne Haskins obviously the Redskins took um, the quarterback 15th overall what is your analysis of Haskins uh, well, before I get to that, I mean it's it's very uh, it's it's very appealing because we've got two Ohio State players to talk about, John. Right. I know you're excited about that. We get some <laughs> Buckeyes to talk about, but uh, Dwayne Haskins, uh, we watched him a lot for the matchup show. Um, I broke him down on the matchup show, uh, showed a you know different aspects to his game, whether it was a deep ball arm talent, the accuracy in the middle field, touch throws an outside wheel route and his ability to move inside the pocket. I think it's where you need to start with Haskins. I mean, he's a natural pocket thrower. And when you study his game and the traits that come from being a natural pocket thrower and then look at the film, you can see the upside to his game, John. You really can. Mm-hmm. Because he can manage that pocket. He could slide. He could step up. He can move. You saw that in the Rose Bowl versus Washington, his first touchdown pass in the post route. Eyes go to the front side of the formation, moves the safety from the middle field, feels the edge pressure, now steps up and rips the ball through the middle of the field because now he has moved that safety. He's created a window down the field. Um, now, what the the one negative I would say on him, John, he just needs to play more. Right. Okay? He needs to play more. We have one season of film on him. One season of film on him. And when you're talking about a player that doesn't have a lot of game experience, this could be said for Kyler Murray as well. I mean, Kyler Murray is really a one-year starter also. For Oklahoma they need to play more and when they're going to have to play more now the, the speed of the game is really going to increase um, but I'll tell you what in terms of his processing ability his ability to manipulate defenders with his eyes and the different types of throws he made uh, you can look at the you know really John the last three games too, Michigan Northwestern and Washington those three films if you really study them you see the complete skill set there in terms of the type of throws he can make the deep ball throws versus Northwestern down the sideline um, to beat man coverage. I mean, he, when you watch his film, the ball rarely leaves the screen. What I mean by that mm-hmm. is when he throws a deep ball, it doesn't vanish in the end zone copy. He puts that thing on a line. You saw that there. He's ability to make a tight window throw in the corner of the end zone versus Northwestern against Michigan. The touch throws he made. 
the ability to find open receivers and against a defense that brought a lot of pressure. Now, also, there's some things that Ohio State did schematically that, that transitioned right to the NFL. I thought they had more of a pro-style route tree than that Ohio State offense. A lot of over routes or a lot of mesh concept, which is shallow crossers or mm-hmm. from a defensive perspective, we call it high-low crossers. Um, the wheel routes, um, the throws inside the numbers, the deep squares or what I call a dig route. And also the deep ball throws that when he can read the safety rotation and find the matchup outside the number, he can put it wherever he wants. Uh, now, we'll say at times, uh, you know, and this happens a lot with young quarterbacks, at times their mechanics – um, if you're looking at it from a pro coaching perspective, John, they're going to need to be worked on in detail. And you see that with Haskins. Sometimes he's an upper body thrower. Right. Okay. And, and that will, you can get away with that at Ohio State when you have the, the skill talent they do versus the rest of the conference and the speed they have at the wide receiver position. Uh, but in the NFL, that needs to be corrected. Also, at times when the pocket gets a little cloudy for him, you know, he gets people at his feet. That's when he becomes, again, more of that upper body thrower. But those are, John, those are things that can all be corrected. And I'm telling you right now, for, for Washington fans, when he does play in the games, there's going to be some up and down moments. That's okay. That's okay. If I'm a coach, you know, I need those up and down moments so I can teach the player. So and you have the film to look at and say, this is where you need to be better. This is where you have to correct. This is where you need to put your eyes. Because he's going to see new things. That's for every quarterback drafted this year. They're going to see new things when they get on the field. But in looking at Dwayne Haskins and what he has in terms of the traits and how the traits will transition to the NFL, he fits perfectly. And also in, in Gruden's offense, which I called on the matchup show a heavily schemed passing game with West Coast concepts, I think that fits really well for him. I wrote a piece at ESPN leading up to the draft where I put the best fits for the quarterback. And that's where I had Dwayne Haskins I remember that. going to Washington. Um, I said, you know, they might have to trade up to get him or they can sit at 15. Worked out well for them that they can sit at 15. But win from the pocket. John, we all know that's the NFL game. Win right. from the pocket. And even though you and I have talked how the game is changing, it's more wide open, you see more horizontal throws, it's still the ability to win from the pocket, whether that's a play in a critical game situation from the high red zone or third and seven to ten, you have to make those throws. And Dwayne Haskins' film, he made those throws. As... Yes, yeah, sometimes he's got better matchups, but you can't fault him for making the throws that are there. Those are the throws that were in the offense. And Ohio State did a great job of scheming and creating those matchups. Quarterback still has to make the throws, and that's what you saw in his film. Hey, Matt, as a former safety in the NFL, and this is what we had Quincy Avery who on last week, and he worked with he has worked with Dwayne since his junior year in high school, and he talked about the details that that that. Dwayne asks about and tries to see the game with. So as a former safety, what are some of the things, what, is there one or two things that you look and say, this is, as a former safety, this is what would give me some problems trying to defend this guy. Is there anything that, you, that jumps out at you with that aspect? Well, I think a couple of things. I think one is I, I use the term processing ability. That's the ability to read the field and do it with speed. You have to do it with speed in the NFL. You have to see late safety rotations. You have to be able to understand that if a free safety is aligned in the post, post-snap, he might be dropped, moving over to the deep path. You know, a great example is Greg Williams' defense, mm-hmm. uh, the defense we ran in Washington. There was guys moving everywhere, John. <laughs> there was times Sean Springs aligned up in the box and dropped to the deep half, you mm-hmm. know? And there was things we could do with Sean Taylor, who, who could line up on the opposite half and, and 
move to the middle field, then get to the far hash and make a play in the football. So that's what you see, though, on his college film is that he can read those safeties. Okay, he can read those safeties. I brought the, the play from Washington, against Washington mm-hmm. in the Rose Bowl. I think another one is a double post that they ran against Northwestern, the Big Ten right. championship game. He knows they're in quarters coverage. He holds the backside safety. Why does he hold the backside safety in quarters? He doesn't want him to be involved. He doesn't want him to come from the backside quarter and overlap the deep post route, which you can't do. So he, his eyes immediately go there. And you see that a lot in his film. Where do his eyes go post-snap? Where are they going post-snap and why are they there? You know, is he manipulating the defense? And I see that a lot with Dwayne Haskins on his college film. He knows where to put his eyes and to hold the safety. And I'll tell you, the, if you watch the great quarterback, and I'm not comparing Dwayne Haskins yet to the great quarterbacks in the NFL, but you watch the quarterbacks like the Brady's, the Breeze, you know, Phil Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, Matt Ryan, where, where they put their eyes. Right. It's so important because as a defensive player, hey, man, will they, where their eyes go, guess what? That's where your eyes usually go too, right? Right. Because <laughs> you're saying, why are they looking over there? What, 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 is they, what are they doing right now? Why are they looking over there? And that's going to hold you. And that's all it takes in the NFL. Can you hold them for a half a second or a second to create that throwing window? And now now you bring in the arm field. Once you create that window, you have to be able to put the ball in there. And that's what he can do. Whether it's putting the ball on a line, making a touch throw down the sideline, whatever it may be, he's showing his college film he can do that. Now that that's the number one thing for me is to answer your question. It's the ability to hold or manipulate defenders and then to have the arm talent to throw, whether it's putting heat in the football and making a touch throw or attacking the tight window. And in and I, I you know I watched all his games, so I saw that mm-hmm. even when he first came in as a, um, the previous year. Now, let's go to another player, different conference, Montez Sweat, their other first round pick. We, you know, we heard about the heart conditions and, and right. he was cleared later or misdi- they said it was misdiagnosed. We know about the suspension from Michigan State. He says he learned from that. So let's put that aside. As a player, what are the Redskins getting in this guy? Well, I think, one, um, I, I like the aggressive move to trade up and get him. I do. I did, too. Uh, because, you know, every team, and I think fans need to understand this, there's 32 doctors. There's a doctor for every team. Some players are going to have a medical. Uh, they're going to get passed, and some players aren't. So if your team looks at Montez Sweat and you sign off on the medical, to get him at 26 is incredible value because he has top 10 traits. Right. There's no question he has top 10 traits on the edge. You're talking about someone who's 260 pounds and ran a 4-4-140. Okay, I ran a 4-4-9 at 203, John. <laughs> okay? <laughs> this guy's 260 and ran a 4-4-1. And I studied a lot of his tape leading up to the drafts and obviously uh, uh, breaking down his game at the FCC Network. And one, he can eat up grass off the football. What I mean, he can get vertical in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And that's going to force tackles now to adjust their technique. They have to kick back faster. And at times, they've got to open their hips, and now he has them. He's got the flexibility to bend on the edge. He's got incredible length, you know, 35-inch arms, which helps him in the run game as well. He's got good range in the run game, too. He will run to the football. He will run to the football, and he will make plays as a pursuit defender from a backside position. He also uses the, the, that length. I remember watching the film, I think it was versus LSU, where he can just bench out an offensive tackle, create right. separation. Now he has – now he can use his hands, his counter moves to disengage and make a play in the run game. But we look at how he fits in Washington. 
and that, that's another rusher opposite Ryan Kerrigan. And right. that's what you needed. You lose Preston Smith in free agency. And I think he steps in, and maybe he does early in his rookie season, he's a situational player. But those situations are, are so critical, John. Right. You're talking about your sub package personnel, someone who can get home to the quarterback. And someone he can use on twist stunts as well. I've looked at Mississippi State film, they used Montez Sweat on twist stunts as well. So he understands or has a feel about defensive line games up front. I think it's tremendous value late in the first round because, as I said, when I watched his film, I said, that's a top 10 player. That's a top 10 edge rusher. We look at his film and the athletic traits and the height, weight, and speed measurables. And, you know, it's, it's funny because, um, first of all, when you see him in person, the guy is really impressive in person, very chiseled. I mean, people, Matt, I know you know that I used to get accused of all that stuff. Like they'd see me in person and be very impressed with how right. chiseled I am. You know, Montez Sweat even tops that. So anyway, the two, there's right. two, there's a couple of things that stood out to me. And I was, I remember watching the Alabama film and, and if you can comment on these two aspects. One, he seems to play very physical or with some violence, obviously. And yeah. just that. And then the other thing is they're down 24, nothing. You talk about running to the ball. And I don't know how, if you look for this or not, but, I do look for this because when they're down 24 nothing late in the game, the guy is still showing up in the picture. He's still running to the ball in every play. And I'm curious, you know, on those two aspects, if you saw those things and what those mean. I did see those things. And if I'm a coach, I love it. Uh, I mean, and that, that's the identity of the Mississippi State defense. You, you saw from Jonathan Abram, the safety. He got drafted late first by Oakland. They run to the football. They play with high effort. You can win with that because you can't teach that. You, you just can't as a coach. I don't care if you're talking about high school kids right uh if you if you don't play with effort uh, you got problems you got problems as a coach you got problems getting guys in the field then i mean that was the number one thing when i played with greg williams if right. you didn't run to the football i mean you did not want to come in the film on monday morning i'll tell you that right now <laughs> you did not want to do that um you know that's you know another example different team but i think that's one of the main reasons that oliver was drafting the top 10 I mean, yeah. You can watch Ed Oliver on film, his Houston film. I mean, he runs the ball like a linebacker, you know? The effort level is that – one thing that does, John, is it creates energy within your football team. And you want guys like that in the defensive line room. You do. You, you can win with that. Because everything else – that, that, as a coach, everything else you teach, whether it's your hand movement, you know, attacking pro offensive tackles, if they ask Montez to drop from the coverage, which they might do, uh, and their base personnel. That stuff you can work with. That That's reps, reps, reps. And it comes with game reps, too. Uh, you know, just like we talk about with Dwayne Hassis, Montez will go through situations that, that he's never seen before in the game of football, but he's going to learn from those. But if you have a player that doesn't hustle, doesn't doesn't run through the football, well, now they got some serious problems. Because all the athletic traits, that stuff doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't. It, it just doesn't. And we don't talk about enough at the pro level because I think sometimes John's just assumed it's and not. Look at some of the poor defenses oh. from the NFL last last year. Yeah. And one thing you'll notice right away is the effort level. It doesn't jump. As a coach, you should turn on the film. And even if you're getting beat, even if your technique is, is awful, you can still run to the ball. You can still finish plays. You know? Because then every, that, I guess the best word for it, John, is it becomes contagious. Right. It becomes contagious. And, you and know, those good defenses I played on in Washington during Greg Williams, i tell you what, it was the effort level. Because that's when you get guys – pursuing becoming the second or third guy in an tackle to strip the football. You got to get there. You got to get there. Right. And no, another thing, John, those guys that played that hard with that intention level, they end up always being around the football. And that's when good things happen. You got to get there though. 
Don't be a watcher. Don't watch. I can get someone in the third row to stay on the field and watch. <laughs> I don't need that mm-hmm. as a coach. I need people that play hard. And, and it's funny because I brought that up because the guy who's replacing Preston Smith, that's one of the things the veterans had to talk to him about early in his career because there were plays where they could point to him and say, if you're hustling to the ball, you stop this play. But, but I'm going to switch now to another guy, and this is a guy that I really, really like if, he, if he's healthy, is Bryce Love. And I know that mm. I know the people in the building are very excited to get this guy because of the talent he has, and I know that they have a relationship with him because of Randy Jordan, the running back's coach. They, they love the character and all that as a player. You know, he's got that wiggle. He makes people miss. What do you see as a safety trying to stop a guy like that? What do you think of this guy? Um, he's got great short area speed. Great short area speed. And obviously, we don't, don't have a 40-time on Bryce Love because, I mean, he had the knee injury. Uh, but I don't think the 40-time matters. I mean, it's the same thing with Josh Jacobs from Alabama who went in the first round to the Raiders. He ran a 4-6. It doesn't matter. It's a short area speed at that position. Right. You have to get from A to B very quickly, very quickly. Zero to 10 yards. How fast can you go zero to 10 yards? That's what I want to see. And can you make people miss? We talk about all the time at matchup. That eighth defender in the box, you don't have enough guys to block him. That's on the running back to make him miss. And if it's in sub-package personnel, it's the seventh defender walking down, whether it's a slot corner or strong safety. You have to make him miss. Either you run him over or you shake him. Okay, and Bryce Love at 5'9", 200 pounds is not going to be a power back. Everyone understands that. Doesn't mean he can't finish runs. Okay, but he's not Marshawn Lynch. All right, at the point of attack. At the point of attack, Bryce Love is a guy that can shake you out of your cleats. And that's what you see on his film. That's what you see on his film last year. And obviously, even more in the 27. If you go back two years, it's 2017. Yeah. Uh, I think he made his numbers are ridiculous in 2017. But it's the same type of style. And you, and you can see enough. I mean, I, I watched the Notre Dame game this year where he busted a long run. And, again, it's making people miss and creating positive angles where you can cut down defensive pursuit. That's what he does well. But getting through the hole, speed through the hole, and speed at the point of attack, whether you want to call it lateral speed or short area burst, however you want the terminology to be, it doesn't matter because he sets up defensive backs. And when defensive backs on the film stop their feet against Bryce Love, what you never want to see is a defensive back coach. When they stop their feet, <laughs> it's over, John. He's going to shake him. He's going to go. Um, and I do think he has pass game upside. Now, obviously, last year, I think he had 20 catches. Mm-hmm. Only like 99 yards. Nine, I think so it was 22 for 90, quickness. or 20 for 90, something like that, yeah. Yeah. With, with that short area quickness, you can work with that. You can run an angle route. You can catch the ball in the flat. And I always talk about this with the pass game upside at the running back position. I understand you're not running comebacks at 15 yards. You're not running a wide receiver route for you. What you're doing is catching the ball underneath. Yeah, every once in a while you run a wheel route or release. And I think the wheel route is the one that they talk about too. Like, can he do that? I think he can do that. I have no doubt that he can do that. He can run a wheel route. And the more important thing is, can he catch the ball in the flat? Right. When they're playing zone coverage, they run a high-low, whether it's a corner route, a corner route over the top and a flat route underneath, can he catch the ball and then make someone miss and get yards after the catches? That's what Washington really needs is – Players who can catch the ball right. and, and and create yards after the catch. That's what they need in this offense. So if you're going to run West Coast routes, you're going to throw the ball. You know, this is what I always say about West Coast, John. This is what I was taught by Steve Jackson, you know, former DB coach from Washington, Redskins. West Coast concepts, when the ball is thrown between the numbers and the hash. That's where they want the ball to go. Mm-hmm. The more higher percentage throws for quarterback, the more built on timing and rhythm. And what you want is someone to catch the ball and get up the field. 
And I believe that Bryce Love has those traits to do it. You know, just because someone doesn't have massive production in college doesn't mean they can't have pass game upside in the NFL. You know, we saw two running backs come off the board with Miles Sanders from Penn State going to the Eagles and David Montgomery from Iowa State going to the Bears. They both have pass game upside. You look at the numbers in college, not huge receiving numbers, but you just look at the player. Do they have natural hands? They look natural catching the football. You don't want a running back who looks like he's wearing boxing gloves and he's trying to catch the ball, you right. know. But you do see that sometimes. You don't see it with Bryce Love. Yeah, he's one of my. I think he's one of my favorite picks that they had, just because I, you see the potential. It's probably for beyond because of the knee injury. Last guy I want to talk to you about or ask you about is one guy that I loved watching in college. There's a little bit of a bias there because of the Ohio State connection, but I just enjoyed watching him as a player, which is Terry McLaurin. You know, the funny thing is, Matt, because, like, the reason why I liked him watching is because he, he was a gunner. He's, you know, getting down on special teams, the blocking. And it was this year where you started to see more of the speed. I was surprised, at, to be honest, at how fast he was because he didn't always see it in previous years. You saw it more this year. What is your um, analysis of, of Terry? Well, I'll start with what you, you first mentioned, you know, the ability to play special teams and the block as a wide receiver. Again, those aren't things we talk about in the draft process. You know, we don't, we don't zero in on those things of breaking down players. I'm telling you right now, from the perspective of coaching staff, staff in the National Football League, that stuff is vital to the, the building of your roster and the building of your team. You need guys like that. You, you got to have guys like that. A guy I played with uh, in Washington, do you remember James Thrash? Yeah. James was like that. James was like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was one of our best special teams players and one of our toughest players. Because he could cover kicks, whether punt or kickoff. He could block. He could do a lot of things that don't always show up in, in, a, in a draft report on a player. So that's the first thing you look at. That's going to make your team instantly better. It's going to make your special teams better. It's going to force other guys to compete on special teams. Because he's going to go in there and challenge some veteran, veterans for special teams reps. As a receiver, the first thing you look at is the speed, sub 4-4 four, four speed. And you saw that this year on the Ohio State film. Right. What I was surprised about is he, he made some contested catches too, John. He did. He did. You look at the, I think the tape against Maryland, against Indiana also, he made some plays at the point of attack where there's tight coverage. He can separate from people down the field. There's no question about it. But I think also <clears throat> how he projects in the pros, more as an inside receiver too, who can run shallow crossers in deep over routes because he's going to separate and then – it goes back to what we were just talking about with Bryce Love. Production after the catch. I think right. he's a catch-and-run guy in the NFL. In addition to what he can do vertically down the field. Because he's still developing as a route runner. You can see that in his intermediate cuts. When he's running a deep uh, dig route or a deep out route or even a comeback or a curl. That stuff will improve. How so? But like what do, you, what do you see? In terms of running after the catch, that's where Coach Gruden comes into the play and how you scheme him up. That's where those West Coast routes come into play. Shallow crosser, create a lot of traffic in the middle of the field, get him the ball with open field to work with. Now you're going to see that sub 4-4 speed coming to play. And like I said, he's he's a guy that I think just adds to the culture of an organization too. Um, I think that mm-hmm. was a that was another bet. I think that's a definite bonus and benefit from getting a guy like him. I'm going to switch big time gears here for a minute, Matt, and go to some people that you played for because I think you know you played for some pretty historic coaches here in a couple different ways. So the first guy I mm-hmm. want to ask about is Steve Spurrier. 
I could fill 30, 40 minutes just talking about Steve Spurrier's stories. When, you, when people ask you about him, what, are the, what do you tell them about what it was like to play for him? The first thing I always say about Coach Spurrier is he truly cared about his players. He did. You don't often get that in the NFL. It's such a business. It's such a business. And Steve really did care about his players. And I think Steve learned from that experience in, in terms of being a head coach in the NFL. And his attention to detail at times was so offensive focused that I think, it, you know, we didn't develop enough, especially on special teams right. and defensively. But you remember that year, my first year in Washington with, with Coach Spurrier, we were 3-1. and one. Right. We had beat the Patriots. We lost in overtime to the Giants. We were 3-1. and one. And then the wheels kind of fell off. We had injuries. Uh, we had injuries in the quarterback position. Played three quarterbacks that season. And ended up going five and eleven. I thought our team was much more talented, John, than five and eleven. Right. And I always say this. You know, Coach Spurrier was unique. He was different in the way he coached, uh, in in terms of the structure of practice and the emphasis on practice. But you know, I got to take some blame too. Now, I mean, us as players, we have to take some blame too. Right. We didn't play well enough. We didn't. You know, we didn't play well enough. You know, and there was times, and I've talked to you about this before, when we practiced at the indoor soccer park because we didn't have an indoor facility. <laughs> that's Washington. right. I forgot about that. You know, and that stuff uh, didn't really work out for us, okay? Uh, situations like that. But, man, we have to take some responsibility, too, as players. I always go back to the Sunday night game. So that was 03 season. Yeah, 03 season against Miami. Right. And we were up big. Tim Hasselbeck was playing quarterback for us, was making plays all over the field. We were going up. We were up big, and Miami came back and won. And we had a, a double A gap blitz call, and Ricky Williams got through there because Ricky Williams is one of the best players I've, I've played against at the running back position. It was just myself and Ricky in the open field. Well, John, I didn't win that matchup. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky Williams stiff army into the turf. I remember that. And went for a touchdown. So <clears throat> you could say Coach Breer didn't have a lot of success. Well, in that situation, neither did I. <laughs> okay, and you have to be honest about yourself as a player, especially now. You know, I'm so far removed from the game. I have no problem saying in that situation, I make a tackle against Ricky Williams and win that football game. Maybe we can put together two or three more wins after that. You know, the Carolina game that year when they scored fourth and goal on the goal line to win the football game. You know, th those situations, there were games in that season where we just needed to make two or three more plays. And then the narrative changes. The narrative completely changes. You know, because there's no question that Steve Spurrier can coach. There's no question that uh, from an offensive perspective, he is absolutely brilliant. But I think there are things that Steve learned that he, when he came back in the coaching, probably changed um, at, when he came back to the college level just in terms of attention to detail for your entire football team. Because it's, I've always had this question, John, about, um, you know, when you have a head coach that's calling plays. And some guys are great at it. Sean McVay is a perfect example, you know. I mean, there was the Super Bowl with him calling plays. Um, you know, I played for Mike Sherman in, in Green Bay, and, and Coach Sherman called plays. Some guys can do it. But I always, always say this, and I always question this, as a player, when you have someone calling plays on one side of the football, they're running the entire team, you know? Right. And that's where Joe Gibbs, you saw with Coach Gibbs how he managed the entire football team, and he was excellent at it. Joe Gibbs is – we don't talk about Coach Gibbs enough. And I understand right now, all the, uh, you know, especially now it's all about Coach Belichick and the Patriots, which they deserve. I have no problem saying Bill Belichick's probably the greatest coach ever in the National Football League. Joe Gibbs isn't far behind. His ability to manage people, 
Uh, and that's part of being a head coach. You know, forget the whiteboard and the X's and O's. and It's about the ability to manage people and get professional athletes, grown men, uh, to play together, believe in each other, and love each other during that season. And Coach Gibbs was excellent at that. How did he do that? So he does. He goes on a NASCAR and wins that, too. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's just a winner. He's a winner. And I always tell people when they ask about Coach Gibbs, I said, look, he won three Super Bowls, three different quarterbacks. Three different quarterbacks during his time in Washington. And obviously that was way before I was in Washington, but in the personalities he, he, he can manage. Because um, every team is unique in terms of their team chemistry. Um, and he was awesome to play for. He was awesome to play for. And physical. John, that first yeah. training camp. So now we have Coach Gibbs and Greg Williams. <laughs> that training camp was awful. <laughs> yeah. It was awful, man. I, I went that 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 was almost like punishment. I mean, just because how physical it was, and that was back in the old CBA. Right. So we were two days for what four weeks. Yep. And we were in pads every day. We did inside run for people who don't inside inside run is there's no passing, there's no wide receivers, there's no corners. It's just the offensive line, the running backs, the tight end, and, and the front seven from defense and a strong safety. And we did it with no running back. So we just ran into each other for 20 straight minutes. I mean, I, I can't even make this stuff up. But that made me a tougher football player. I remember coming out, it was like the third preseason game. My parents flew out and came to the game. And my mom asked me if I was eating because I had lost so much weight. I mean, I was probably down to 195 uh, because we ran so hard. We hit, uh, you know, the conditioning with Greg before practice. Anyone who's been to Ashburn in, in August, it's not like it's 70 degrees out there. It's, yeah, it's 90 plus degrees out there. You walk out of uh, the locker room, you're like, man, how am I going to get through this today? This is one of the first practice. I got, I got two of these today. And then you have meetings at night. I mean, that was the old school training camp where you competed every single day. Yeah. And that was also, I'll tell people this too, you played in the preseason too. Right. Back then, at the fourth preseason game, um, as a one against the Falcons in Coach Gibbs' first year, we played. Right. You know, the first quarter. We were out there in the third preseason game against Miami. Uh, we played into the third quarter. So it was just a different style of football. Uh, but I'm grateful uh, I played for both of those coaches. I learned so much for both of them. I, I really did. I mean, it, it, like I said before with Coach Spurrier, I take a lot of responsibility as a player that it didn't work out. And with Coach Gibbs, you know, I was introduced to a new style of toughness that I didn't know if my body can make it through it, but with Coach Gibbs and Greg Williams pushing you and motivating you, I mm. found out that I could. Different era, Matt, different era. On that, I'm going to wrap it. That's great insight, Matt, and you know I always appreciate you coming on and sharing that for me, which I this is why you know, what people are listening to now are the conversations that you, you and I often have just on the phone while I'm sitting in my office, so I'm glad that other people can hear this because I think it's fantastic. So I appreciate you joining me, Matt. Oh, thank you. Go Hawkeyes, right? <laughs> there you go. All right, I'm still pissed about that game too, so. All right. All right, Matt. On that note, I'm going to kick you off the air. Thanks, Matt. All right. I'll talk to you soon. I actually said to him, I said, you might want to consider sort of creating your own number instead of just taking one that has been a part of the organization for 33 years no one else has worn it 
And I said, think, think about it for a few days. So he did. Called me back. He said, I'd like to wear number seven. I said, it's perfectly fine by me. He's going to have so many adjustments to deal with, Steve, when it becomes to become a professional football player. The last thing anybody needs to worry about is keep hounding him about a number. So it'll be interesting to see a much bigger version of me out on the football field. All right, and welcome back to the show. And speaking of the Joe Gibbs era, and I'm going to actually go back to the first Joe Gibbs era with this next topic, and it's the Joe Theismann. I had, again, number controversy, if that's what you want to call it. Um, Theismann gave Dwayne Haskins, the rookie quarterback, his permission to wear the number seven. Haskins would become only the second player in franchise history to wear that number, and obviously the first since Joe Theismann made it famous in the mid-1980s. I'm going to bring in Bram Weinstein and, you know, just a little discussion here. And Bram, I want to share some of my thoughts first before I, before I ask you, because I think we have different perspectives. I did not grow up here. So the, the attachment to some of these numbers is not going to be as emotional for me as it is for other people. I understand from a fan's perspective why they might feel a certain way with that number seven, what it represented. I think from my perspective, sometimes, again, the, taking the emotion away, I look at some of the numbers from that era. Guys were a Hall of Famers. Russ Grimm, his number's been handed out like six or seven times since he retired. Uh, Joe Jacoby, borderline Hall of Famer, number been handed out six or seven times. So there have been there are examples of guys who it just feels random to me why some of these numbers were never put back in circulation and why some may have been. And I think it's probably good there. I Again, I'm going to – Two thoughts here. One, you talk to some people over in the organization. I think some people are like, just let the kid should create his own legacy. And, and I think they, they don't understand why that maybe this became a big topic. Um, I think the other side says that why should one person, why is it Joe Theismann's decision? This is the organization's number. He did make it famous. But what I would like to see, Bram, is like if you put like little patches on a jersey like that, put on, you know, the number seven, Joe Theismann, somebody, someone who you know um, wore that before you and what it signified. And I'll give you an example. Tyler Catalina wears number 68. Tyler may not make this roster, but when he got that number 68, he went back and watched Russ Grimm play and understood the significance of that number. So those are some of my, I guess, quick thoughts on that. As a fan, as somebody who grew up here, what is your take? So I thought Joe was a little out of line. Okay. And, and I and listen, I really like Joe, and he's been part of the community ever since and been part of the broadcasting circles, and right. he's been a big part of everything. And I've you know, fortunately had the opportunity to be around him and do things with him and work with him. And I like him a lot, and I grew up with him. He's part of the heyday of the Redskins right. when they were the Patriots, and I, and I get it. I get all of that. Um, it's been a long time, like a really, really long time. I do believe that if Joe Theismann was not injured by Lawrence Taylor, that he would have ended up in the Hall of Fame. It had his career not ended prematurely the way it did, but we don't know the answer to that. And the fact is he wasn't. And the Redskins won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, right. which I think says a lot more about Joe Gibbs than it does say oh, yeah. about Joe Theismann. And the Hawks. And, and listen, I don't want to dismiss his legacy here because he has one. But I know he doesn't want to hear this, but he's not Sammy Bond. He's not Sonny Jurgensen. Yeah. And it has been three decades and this quarterback wants to come in and wear it. I was actually surprised it was even a conversation. I, honestly, I, I really, I was. And I thought it felt very odd that he felt this necessity to say, you got to kiss my ring to get me to say, okay, to wear the number. And even went so far as to say, you should really think about this. 
Um, did, did he? Admit, did, I, I really just don't. I, I don't really get where he's coming from, and I I don't see an issue with it. I guess is the did, point. Did Joe? I, it seems like Joe initiated this whole topic. Yes, and to your point, I don't think it is his decision. It's the organization's decision to but, determine but I know who gets that, the number. But there inside there, it was his decision. But I agree, it shouldn't. I don't think it should be. But it was. They yeah. wanted to make sure that he gave the blessing here. And I think the hard part for me again, I look at some guys. And this goes back to a legacy of winning. I know that. There are some guys here, like Clinton Portis, I thought had an outstanding career here. The year after he retires, they're giving his number out to Josh Wilson. So there was, you know what I mean? And so, and I'm not equating Portis to that. I'm just saying there are other really, really good players. And I think Thiesman was a really good player in yes, this franchise was a history. Really good and player. I think the hard right, and I think the hard the hard part for me is like, is is there if you're gonna start doing this with numbers, there should be a very lofty position it's like are you a hall of famer or not and maybe is that the benchmark because i also think you kind of can honor a guy's legacy they didn't give this out to some schlub they give they're giving it out to a first round pick and i think i believe and i could be wrong here but i think that with for haskins the number is it's also there's a religious significance i think the number seven i don't know for sure um but you know um so i don't know if it's just as mad i think there isn't a deep attachment for him to that number for for a variety of reasons um, but you know, it'd be, I think you can honor somebody's legacy by also seeing that number out there, because when you see that number out there, you're going to remember some of those days. And, and again, I would like to see it again, put a patch on there. If you want to do something like that, if there's a significant number, put a patch on there, you know, guys who are Joe Theismann, then, then give the guy some information on Joe Theismann, make sure they know who it is that came before you that wore that number. Yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just, I hate saying this, but it's the only way to say this where he doesn't fall into this Mount Rushmore category for them. And I think he thinks he does. And that, and that's where I think the mm. disconnect was. You know, like I'll say this, when I was a kid, I grew up here. I wore number seven on all the teams I played on because of him, right? right? So he did mean that to me. He really did. But this is 30 some years ago. And this generation of fans now that are young, they don't know his role in any of this. They know the name Rigo. They know the Hogs. They know Joe Gibbs. They don't know that Joe Theismann was a pivotal part of all of that. He may not want to hear that, but that's just the reality of time passing. It doesn't It doesn't change his legacy here, but he's not Sammy Ball. He's not Sonny Jurgensen. He's not Rigo. He's not Art Monk. He's not Daryl Green. He's not Joe Gibbs. He's not the Hogs as a whole. Or the fun, or, or the the over the hill gang, or George Allen, and I, I hate saying that, but he is below that category, and I just felt like I don't know where he got off doing this this week, and I and I guess the organization just wants to be so hands off because PR wise, they never get it right in any of these little <laughs> moments, and they probably said, "You guys figure it out," because every time we step in and do something, we get criticized for doing yeah, it. Yeah, and it's funny because remember the criticism back when Bobby Mitchell's number was given out. Yes. And that was when Spurrier was here was Leonard Stevens. And it's like that. And that was a, that was, and that was the only guy that's worn that since Bobby, nobody else has touched that since. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I definitely look at it as time. And I think that I will say though, that, you know, what people remember are the, are the players you, you're, you know, you know that Joe Theismann wore number seven, but you're going to remember Joe Theismann. And is the number, how primary is that number in your mind? And like Dwayne Haskins can go out and create his own legacy. You're not going to forget Joe Theismann because he wore the number seven. I agree. They also had no problem saying no to Landon Collins about 21, who had a case of saying, this is the number I want to wear. And they just said, absolutely not. So I did find it interesting that they said, 
Um, just go talk to Joe and get him to say yes, and it's okay because it was a firm no on Sean Taylor's number. Well, I think, and I and I don't know all of this, but I, you know, I'm sure that Taylor's family would have some say in that. And that's also, I think that even with that one, it's funny because it's coming up on 12 years this year for that. I think the emotion is still fairly deep for many people in the organization that I can see why that one wouldn't go back into circulation anytime soon, more so than... than I will say this, though. You know, anybody who sits in a chair at 980 from 10 to uh, 1 needs to put Bram Weinstein on the chair now. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, I mean, and here's the thing, like, I've done this a long time, right? The minute I leave... I'm done. You know what I mean? Like there's not going to be there. ESPN's going to go on and I'm not going to sit there and ask them to somehow do anything with my chair out there. I'd say like, you got to fill it and you got to fill it right now. And that's just how, you know, but again, nobody's going to forget Joe Theismann and what he did. He was a damn tough player. And, um, you know, nobody's going to forget that. Nobody should forget what he did for the franchise. Nobody should forget what the hogs did. And all their numbers are back in circulation. So, you know, I think there's a lot of things to be said. I think what this organization needs is to the way you move past this is to start finally having your own success. And that's something they haven't done enough of. Imagine how many numbers would have been put to retirement had they had anything the last 20 some years. So on that note, Bram, going to wrap it up here. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this podcast and tune in next week. We'll have some talk about rookie minicamp and many other topics.